We are a community that loves like Jesus, and my hope and my prayer is that this would be a transformative space for you. We are in a season of celebration, and if you're listening to this in March of 2021, Easter is coming upon us very soon. And I wanted to take one week and talk about a subject that I know is very difficult to talk about sometimes. Some embrace it, some run away from it, and some are confused by it. But today, we're going to get to the bottom of it, and this is the idea of giving. Today's sermon is titled, The Wisdom of Generosity. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Talking about a subject like giving and generosity is easy and difficult at the same time. As a pastor, sometimes we're seen in a negative light when it comes to asking for money, giving, offering in the church. Yet I believe it's an important topic, and it is easy for me because I have seen the blessing and the fruit of my life of generosity. But there's a problem in our modern day. There's a problem with generosity in our culture. We are attached to things. And we need to go through a process of detaching from things in order to attach ourselves to character growth, like generosity. The detachment of things, we need then to embody the idea of generosity, to detach towards away from things in order to attain the freedom to give in under-deserved situations with no returned expectation. Anything else than that kind of generosity is what German theologian, one of my favorite, Jürgen Moltmann would call toxic charity. So it takes wisdom to give in the moment and with the right heart and from our very soul. And I want to illustrate first the story of generosity with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. In verse 25, it says this, a legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right, so he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in verse 30, Jesus replied, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked and beat him and left him near dead. Now it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road, and when he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan who was on the journey came to where the man was, but when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. What do you think? Which one of these three was the neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? Then the legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy towards him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So basically there's this lawyer and he's questioning Jesus and Jesus rebuffs him with a question and a story of something the lawyer would be derailed by, the story of generosity, 
by a Samaritan. The good Samaritan is not a true Jew. It doesn't say if the victim is a believer either. So in this story, we see the misery of the victim evoked the mercy of the charity, the mercy and charity of the Samaritan. And I find this significant that Jesus interpreted Christian love in mercy, generosity, and compassion from a very unsuspecting individual. So the wording that Jesus would have known in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew culture, is giving from the heart, giving from the soul, and Hebrews would interpret the racham, which is from the womb. The racham is the gut, the tender love of our bowels. We give from the very, uh, very bottoms of our stomachs, which is the Hebrew word of saying we give from the heart. So there's an emphasis in the parable about the encounter, that the language of the heart is generosity in the moment and in the crisis, not this, I need to help you because I identify with your pain, or we are equals, therefore I'm going to have this calculated generosity where we take some time to think about what to give. It takes a lot of wisdom to be generous in the moment. It also takes a lot of wisdom to be generous in a calculated, well as, calculated way as well. So we are saturated with moments of encounter. And our view of generosity and love needs to be a moral demand in these encounters and sometimes crises. And since we are faced with the removal of face-to-face -face encounters right now, are we generous in our digital realities? Are we generous in all of our realities and encounters that we face even when we're not face-to-face? -face? So we have to learn to be generous in the moment and in a, in a calculated way as well. So here is the overarching first piece of wisdom that I want to give to you. There's another theologian named Karl Barth, and he had the theory of the hidden neighbor. And the victim in the case of the Good Samaritan is the hidden neighbor. He is the recipient of the care and the sense of fulfilling a duty as well. It is also the assumption in the conversation of the parable that Jesus is answering this question, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? So he gives the story of generosity, the very act of generosity, the raham, right, is raham changing. It's the changing of your soul. It's the changing of the heart. So Bart's concept of the hidden neighbor is the hidden neighbor has really more to give us than we do to them sometimes, and, and almost exclusively. So there are people amongst us that we can see need help, yet maybe we are the ones that need more help than they actually do. So how do I detach from my things so I can be more generous with life encounters with others to give and be generous? In the Raham, well, in Proverbs 10, 16, the wages, of righteous, <coughs> the wages of the righteous lead to life. The earnings of the wicked lead to sin. In Proverbs 11:1, 1, the Lord detests dishonest scales but delights in an accurate weight. In Proverbs 11:4, riches don't help in the day of wrath, but righteousness rescues from death. Proverbs 11:24, those who give generously receive more, but those who are stingy with what is appropriate will grow needy. Proverbs 11:26, people curse those who who hoard grain, but they bless those who who sell it. Proverbs 13:21, trouble pursues sinners, but good things reward the righteous. 
Proverbs 13, 23, a poor person's land might produce much food, but it is unjustly swept away. Proverbs 18, 10, the Lord's name is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and find refuge. The riches of the wealthy are a strong city and like a high wall in their imagination. In Proverbs 38, fraud and lies keep far from me. Don't give me either poverty or wealth. Give me just the food I need or I'll be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or I'll be poor and steal and dishonor my God's name. Well, I want to use money just as an illustration of generosity. And I understand and know along with you that we can be generous in time and skills and money. Yet I want to use money as the example for application because still we as a culture are captivated by it. We have a problem with it and it controls us. It rules us. And I also see that the Samaritan uses it as a tool of generosity, not out of control. So today I'm not going to necessarily ask you for more money for the church, although I want you to think through in a calculated way that concept as well. This sermon is a reorganization of generosity and grasping how much more generous can we be in all ways. So money a lot of times keeps us from being generous. Money is a currency, and this idea and metaphor of currency in a current like a river, currency flows, and usually it flows from people who don't have it to people who do have it. It flows their direction. And one of my cultural principles in my personal life is I need to get good with money and I'll be good with other things in the material world as well. So like if you are good with money, then you will be good with maybe other things and maybe some things in the spiritual world and the emotional world and the psychological world also. Now I'm not advocating that you be bad with money. What I want you to grasp is to be responsible through following the principles of Christ in generosity. So money has a great power over us. Money never acts necessarily, though, in its power independent from human influence. Money in the hands of people amplifies the heart. So in Proverbs 10, 16, the wages of the righteous lead to life, the earnings of the wicked lead to sin. So when money comes into the life of the righteous person, it produces life. But when it falls in the hands of the wicked person, then it leads to sin. It amplifies what's already there in the heart. So if you look deeply in the meaning of the words for righteous and wicked, you will find something interesting. The wicked person in scripture, which label, when they're labeled wicked, is always the one that disadvantages the community to advantage themselves, and the righteous person is the one that disadvantages, disadvantages themselves to advantage the community. So being a business owner as I am, and I understand business pretty well, basically what Proverbs teaches me is charging the highest prices that I can, paying the lowest salaries that I can in order to make the most money that I can, the Bible would call this type of business ownership wicked. When you make the decision to become righteous, then the decision is amplified in generosity and community building and community wholeness and propping people up, those that are in need, those that are living in scarcity, then they start living in enough. So money also has the power of dishonesty in it. Back in the day when I was a kid, I think about 40 years ago, let's say, when you wanted to buy something in bulk, or buy a weighted item, behind the counter you had what you called a balance scale. And in a hardware store like I used to go to, we would buy nails and screws and 
my dad would buy an, a, na a pound of nails or a pound of screws by weight, and they had a balance scale behind the counter. And on a balance scale, on one side, you put weights. So one pound, half pound, and they were weighted and labeled for the scale. Then on the other side of the scale, you would put your product, like the nails and the screws. So you'd put like a pound and a half, and if you wanted to buy a pound and a half of nails, you would put a pound and a half on one side, a weighted weight, and then on the other side, you would start loading in the, the nails until the scale came into balance. Then you would add or take away part of the weight to bring the scale into balance. Well, if you were dishonest, you would spend time shaving the brass down on the weights in order to be able to sell less product, but still charge the pound price. And I've actually seen this in person, people doing this with a digital scale as well. So Proverbs 11.1, 1, the Lord detests dishonest scales, but delights in an accurate weight. So the simple question here is whether or not in the balance of your finances, are you really being honest with yourself? Are you shaving off the brass weights or cheating in your mind even about your own finances? Well, some people honestly believe that they are broke when they are not. They're just cheap, let's say. Some people think that they are actually rich and they're not. They just act like they are and they have nothing. And when you have everything leveraged in your life, you really have nothing. You're broke. And if you're debt-free yet you don't have a lot of things, what does that mean? You just don't have a lot of things you have more expendable even cash than the one that is supposedly rich and leveraged to the, to the nines. So I think that honesty in our financial dealings is a key to the to life that Proverbs is leading us to act out in. So money has this power to make us dishonest. Dishonest with our perception of ourself, dishonest with our perception of others, and therefore money also has the power to make us shallow. It hollows out our character, and eventually we can't handle much, especially when crisis comes. In Proverbs 11:4, riches don't help in the day of wrath, but righteousness rescues from death. So the day of wrath in the Hebrew term was not the day of judgment. It actually was a term for a really, really bad day. And the day that makes a huge amount of, let's say, betrayal or sickness or, or even death. So on those terrible days and when the danger is overwhelming and crisis comes, our money will not help us in any way to face that challenge and that crisis emotionally and spiritually and mentally in our life. It might put a band-aid on some things, but when real losses come, when emotional, relational losses come, money doesn't fix that. So the challenge that we face with focusing on money is money hollows out our character. So if we focus on money too much, we're not prepared for this day of wrath. We're not prepared for the crisis. So making money and spending money takes time and energy and work, and there's very little time for character de development. And really, it's what we're focused on. If you don't have time to be alone with God and with self and do some self-care and friend care and companion care, we're really focused on the wrong things because relationship with God and relationship with others, like we learned in, this, in, the, in the previous verses of the Samaritan story, is the greatest commandment and that's where we need to be spending our time. So on the day of wrath, are you left with arrogance? Are you left with insecurity? Are you left with selfishness? Or are you left with strength and righteousness? Proverbs 38 says, fraud and lies keep me away from you. Don't give me either poverty or wealth. Give me just the food that I need. 
or I'll be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or I'll be poor and steal and dishonor my God's name. So to be humble under prosperity is actually a rarity. To be humble in times of money is a challenge to our human condition. And usually we are smart and we are on top of our game when we're making money and we usually attribute it to ourselves and being our own, having our own intelligence. So our focus is on our acquisition and our ability and hey, look at me. So money has an enormous power. It has a power to destroy our humility. It has a power to destroy our character. It has the power to destroy our life and even our soul. Money has a tremendous power to destroy our, 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 even our life. So I have to ask the question, why does it have so much power? I mean, it's just money. Well, Proverbs 18.10, the Lord's name is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and find refuge. The riches of the wealthy are a strong city and like a high wall in their imagination. So to understand this scripture, you really need to understand the idea of the city, then the wall and the outside of the city. Cities were the only place of safety at times in the old world. So outside the city, you would have wild animals, you would have wind and dust storms, you would have vigilante behavior justice, you would have travel warfare. But inside the city, you had stability. Outside the city, you had instability. So there, were, there was greater security living in the city and people wanted to live in the city. And there is no greater metaphor for status and significance in the old world than the city. So there is only one tower, and that tower is a spiritual tower. When bad things happen to you, when the day of wrath is upon you, there's only one tower, and that is the name of the Lord. That is the character of God. That is the presence of Jesus in our lives. And in the Hebrew thought, when you read something like the name of the Lord, you actually, the author was communicating, and you would have read the attributes of God, the character of God, and the heart of God. There's only one strong tower, and that's the love of Christ. So when you go to verse 11 and you find the riches of the wealthy are their fortified city, it is a false sense of security. It's a false sense of identity. It fuels idolatries. So there's, there's not one person, I believe, that is as generous as they can be. We are not as generous as we can be. We might be generous, and there's a lot of generous people, but none of us can claim that we are generous as we can be. And money, a lot of times, has that false sense of security. It's like that tower. It's like that wall, that fortified city. And because it has that sense of security and that false sense of security, that's what gives it power. And the, and pr the problem with money and the reason why it has power is because of my identity is, is placed with it, my status is placed with it, again, my security is placed with it, and I give it that kind of power. Yet it's a fleeting power, yet it controls me. But remember, we give it that kind of power. So how do we break it? Because if we can give something power, we don't have to give it power, right? So the first thing that I need to grasp is I need to understand the very thing that I'm focused on, that I'm attached to. What is that thing that is, I'm captivated by, my heart is drawn towards, that I have to have or that I, that I need in my life? And then once I identify that, then I can begin to exchange. 
and I replace it with a new principle, a discipline that's rooted in Christ, that I start to become generous instead of greedy. I'm not stacking things away like things and stuff and material items, and I'm not just always having to go buy or look for the next thrill, and I buy this thing so I can then go do this. I don't need any of that. The new principle that I can learn is with the wisdom of the character of God and one of those is generosity. So some of us struggle thinking that we're broke, yet that's a false sense of identity that needs to change to generosity. Some of us struggle thinking that we're rich just because we have stuff or we are able to buy stuff, and those that think they're broke can't buy stuff, and those that think that are rich can buy stuff, yet both of those are a false sense of identity that needs to change into generosity. So my prayer is that we would truly be like the Good Samaritan, and have generosity in our rahum, in our guts, in our hearts, totally detached from things, and we will finally see the hidden neighbor. That, that neighbor, again, has more to teach us than we ever thought or probably could teach them. Let's take communion together. And Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And he teaches me about generosity. And he says, go to the ends of the earth and teach such things. Let's say thanks be to God. Father, thank you for the character that you show, that you talk about in your parable, the Good Samaritan, that character of generosity. Help us to be a generous people, more than we ever have before in our life. Lord, we love you. We These goals that we can strive towards, this character that we can grow in, Lord, help us to be more like Jesus in such a way. In his name we pray, amen.